Hello, this is Odian Think, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 13th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight, I decided to do something a little different. We are going to present a paper which Clifton Emmerheiser had written at least 10 years ago, and perhaps longer, entitled Telegony, Fact or Fiction. We are frequently confronted with this topic, whether it be on social media or on our own Christogenia forum, and it is probably past the time that we discuss it in a podcast. I am going to add a few thoughts of my own and information from a couple of other sources as I present Clifton's paper. I'm going to add a short discussion of microchimerism, which is something that Clifton probably shouldn't be expected to have known about when he wrote this paper. And I'm going to do that before and during my, my my presentation of Clifton's paper. But before I begin, I'm going to make a couple of clarifications. In this paper, Clifton criticizes the milquetoast universalist so-called Christian identity pastor, and I say that kind of sarcastically, Stephen Jones, for promoting telegony as a refutation of what we refer to as two-seed line. However, a belief in telegony, and yes, it is only a belief, was prevalent among early students of Christian identity, two-seed line and non-two-seed line, and it was even accepted by Wesley Swift. But it gets worse than this. Wesley Swift not only accepted a belief in telegony, but also saw that it conflicted with the two-seed line interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 and the perception of the purity of the Adamic race which was perpetuated through the patriarch Seth. So Swift made up a story, or at least... Swift perpetuated a story which he seems to have fabricated because I know of no one else who disseminated it earlier. And yes, the pun was intended. Aside from a plethora of his Wednesday night Bible studies, Swift repeated this story in three of his sermons. The woman clothed with the sun raging waves of the sea, and is divine healing in the atonement. Speaking of the Genesis account immediately after the transgression of Adam, Swift said in this last paper, is divine healing in the atonement, and I quote, but Adam had now lost his light. But God said when he sent him forth in the beginning that he would redeem him, that he would save him, that he would carry out the activities he had intended and promised before the foundation of the world. 
He had declared from the beginning that the race, when they came under the seduction of Lucifer, would fall, but that he would redeem the race and set them in order. And so, as he had declared that he was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, he revealed this also unto Adam and declared it to him as well. He said, Out of the woman shall come one who is my own embodiment, who shall crush the serpent, who shall bruise his head. I shall not let the race be destroyed. And that's quite an embellishment on the scripture in our opinion. I shall cleanse the womb. More embellishment. I shall establish for me a household, and it shall be through you and through this Adamic household, thus from Adam down to Seth, seven gestations of the womb, delivered by the law of the scriptures, having cleansed again the womb, we see this declaration, and all of that is embellishment. And thus we see that under this declaration that God promised the cleansing of Adam and Eve, and he promised the establishment of this of this his household, his race, the only white race upon the face of the earth. And as we come into this book of Genesis to where it says that Adam begat Seth, it doesn't say anything about the other gestations which were between Cain and Abel and Seth because they were involved in all types of catastrophes and none of them were sufficient for the building of God's kingdom. Now, we're not here to teach to seed line. We've already done that to the best of our ability in the Pragmatic Genesis series. We do agree that Genesis chapter 3 describes the sexual seduction of Eve, the birth of Cain from someone other than Adam, and then the birth of Abel from Adam, the punishment of Adam and Eve, and the eventual birth of Seth. However, we're not here to debate that. We accept it as true, being two seed line. We don't agree with Swift that the seed of the woman meant an individual. It certainly did not. We don't agree with Swift that Lucifer seduced Eve, because Lucifer is simply a title used for the king of Babylon in the book of Isaiah and we've already discussed that at great length elsewhere we're here to discuss the ramifications now we agree with some aspects of two seed line as it was taught by Wesley Swift and we agree with the principle in general since it certainly is a foundation of scripture however there are several elements of Swift's understanding of it which we certainly do not agree with and we've already outlined them in Pragmatic Genesis and it is not our purpose to repeat any of that this evening however there is one thing here which Swift teaches that we must agree with vociferously and that is this bullshit yes I said a bad word concerning seven gestations and the cleansing of the womb. Swift said, thus, from Adam down to Seth, 
Seven gestations of the womb, delivered by the law of the scripture, as having cleansed again the womb, we see this declaration. And I don't know where the hell he got this from. Swift just made this up. This isn't in the law. It's not a declaration. There were not seven gestations between Cain and Abel and Seth. There weren't seven babies kicked to the curb because the womb wasn't cleansed. Swift just made it up. It has no scriptural basis whatsoever. And if Swift didn't make it up, then some rabbi must have made it up for him. But Swift accepted telegony as a scientific fact. So he was forced to make something up in order to support his two seedline doctrines. Because telegony is in clear contradiction to two seed line. The two ideas cannot exist together. Then Swift contrived another lie where he said that the other gestations, which were between Cain and Abel and Seth, because they were involved in all types of catastrophes, and none of them were sufficient for the building of God's kingdom. And that is more bullshit. There are many things in the Bible which are described which are certainly not sufficient for the building of God's kingdom. In fact, we would not know sin at all. And the Bible is a book containing many recorded instances of sinful acts and acts perpetrated against the building of God's kingdom. One lie always leads to another. And the fact is simple. Telegony is fiction. So for that, we will proceed with Clifton's paper. Telegony, fact or fiction. And Clifton begins. With this expose, we will scrutinize the hypothesis concerning telegony, which is a superstitious belief that goes back hundreds of years. And he says, I covered the same subject in an article I entitled, Special Notice to All Who Deny to Seed Line Number 18. This false premise is rearing up its ugly head again, so I will repeat what I said in that article, adding more data to show just how fraudulent such a belief is. Before we get involved in this discussion, it would be helpful to see how the 1996 Webster's New Unabridged Dictionary defines it. While sometimes it is advisable to refer to an older dictionary, in this case, with the many advances in the knowledge of genetics, a newer one would be more advantageous. Telegony, a former belief that a sire can influence the characteristics of the progeny of the female parent and subsequent mates. Clifton says, former belief indeed, the word, and this is my note, the word was not even found in my spell checker before I added it today. That proves nothing by itself. I just had to make the observation. And Clifton goes on to quote the Reader's Digest Great Encyclopedic Dictionary from 1986. Telegony, noun biology, 
the alleged influence of a previous sire on the progeny of the same mother from subsequent impregnation by other males. In his 1978 book, The Babylonian Connection, Stephen E. Jones used telegony, along with many other spurious arguments, in a cunning attempt to discredit two seed line doctrine, thus exercising his skills as a master of deception. At the time he was able to get by with that false premise, as it was just prior to the general awakening of startling new technology coming on the scene. On December 3, 1967, Dr. Christian Neithling Barnard of South Africa pioneered the first heart replacement. By 1968, nearly 100 heart transplants had been performed throughout the world. Some years later, the general public became aware of the need for anti-rejection drugs when a recipient receives an organ transplant. This factor of immunity alone will destroy the telegony hypothesis, but there is much more evidence to show Stephen E. Jones's conclusions on this to be flawed. Let's take a look at his primary conclusion on page 85. The reason, and this is Clifton quoting, quoting Stephen Jones. The reason for including telegony in this discussion has been to relate it to the sexual interpretation of Genesis chapter 3, an interpretation which Jones denies. Those who teach that Eve's act was to have had sexual relations with and to have been impregnated by a Negro, Satan, or anyone other than Adam cast doubt on the purity of Abel or Seth, and indeed upon Eve herself. And Jones is making that statement based on a profession that telegony actually happens. And thus we may even doubt the racial purity of the entire white race, including Jesus Christ himself. And that's the end of this quote from Jones, and Clifton responds by saying, if telegony were true, which it isn't, Stephen E. Jones would be correct in this conclusion. Yet there are those who teach to sea line in Israel identity who contradict their own position by embracing the flawed belief of telegony. So Clifton Emmerheiser is picking on Stephen Jones here, and Stephen Jones, in my opinion, deserves it, but he's really trying to show to seedline people who accept this idea of telegony that there's a clear contradiction here. Unless you want to be like Wesley Swift and just invent seven children and, and write them into the scripture yourself in between Genesis chapters 4 and 5. This is why we offered the citations and criticisms of Wesley Swift before we began presenting Clifton's paper. Returning to Clifton, he says, Had one followed Jones's scheming line of reasoning up to this point, one would have fallen disastry, disastrously headlong 
into his deception. Once he concocted this false premise, he was able to establish a perilous, erroneous, misleading conclusion. Like pretzels and Swiss cheese, Jones's thesis is twisted and full of holes. In order to impress his readers and make himself appear an expert on the subject of telegony, Jones quoted from various publications predating the modern discovery of DNA and the intricate world of chromosomes. Nowhere did Jones address the modern-day study of genetics relating to DNA and chromosomes. Anyone having a basic understanding of today's developments in genetics can quickly detect Jones's unmitigated lies. And let me say that in science, and in many fields of science, archaeology as well, when things are discovered, those things are first published in journals that only a small circle of people typically ever get to see. And it takes a long time for that to drip down, if I should use the allegory, to drip down into things like college textbooks and, and eventually into um, mainstream awareness. Now sometimes today, with especially with the internet, an archaeologist can make a discovery or a scientist can announce some new discovery and there will be a flurry of articles about it but not a lot of detailed information because it's the media reacting to a press release. To get the detailed information and the, the substance of the discovery into the common knowledge, into encyclopedias, school textbooks, that takes sometimes 15, 20, 25 years. I know of archaeological digs that occurred over the last 150 years that sometimes the papers on those digs were never published because the archaeologist dropped dead before he had a chance to publish them. Usually, typically, it takes 5 to 15 years to publish in depth a survey of everything found at a, at a large archaeological excavation. So we don't find out about the stuff that's happened 10 years ago for another 5 or 10 years until it's finally published in academic journals or, or in other outlets. It takes a while to disseminate this information. So we think, well, DNA was discovered 50 years ago. Well, well yeah, but the, the common knowledge of the way DNA worked didn't get into the public resources until 30 years ago. So it takes some time. To continue with Clifton's assessment of Stephen Jones's book, in his book, pages 77 to 85, Jones cites Trotham Lysankel, Conway Zirkel, Scheinfeld, and Herbert L. Cooper, C.L. Redfield, V.A. Zellman, and Dr. Austin Flint. In citing these men and their opinions, Jones is using ideologically distorted information, as I have before me, the 11th edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1910. All of these people 
whom Jones quoted were from before 1910, which has an unbiased account of telegony in volume 26, pages 509 to 510, and in volume 13, page 354. The encyclopedia cites nearly the same men, incidences, and observations on cattle breeding as Jones does, but with many conclusions to the contrary. While cattle breeding in the 1800s wasn't the exact science it is today, with the new knowledge of DNA and chromosomes, they managed to carry on experimental breeding under controlled conditions, which proved the theory of telegony to be false. Interestingly, many of the ideas about telegony during that period were coming from Charles Darwin, who is credited as the inventor of the theory of evolution. In this same encyclopedia, on volume 26, page 509, it says this, and Clifton's quoting, Darwin says, It is worth notice that farmers in South Brazil are convinced that mares, which have once borne mules when subsequently put to horses, are extremely liable to produce colts striped like a mule. Citing a book by Darwin, Plants and Animals, Volume 1, page 436. Baron de Piranha, to continue to quote, on the other hand says, I have many relatives and friends. This is in response to, to counter what Darwin said. I have many relatives and friends who have large establishments for the rearing of mules, where they obtain from 400 to 1,000 mules in a year. In all these establishments, after two or three crossings of the mare and the ass, the breeders cause the mare to be put to a horse, yet a purebred foal has never been produced resembling either an ass or a mule. So we have a, one set of folklore from the 1800s which claims that Telegani happens, and we have another set of folklore, and I say that because these are not controlled scientific experiments. Not yet. Clifton will cite some of those later. Another set of folklore, or word-of-mouth information, that refutes telegony. And Clifton's quote continues, The prevalence of the belief in telegony at the present day, which is before the article was printed in 1910, is largely due to a case of supposed infection reported to the Royal Society in 1820 by Lord Morton. A chestnut mare, after having a hybrid by a quagga, a quagga is a subspecies of the zebra, which is now extinct, produced to a black Arabian horse three foals, showing a number of stripes. In one, more stripes were present than the quagga hybrid. The more, however, the case so intimately associated with the name of Lord Morton is considered, the less convincing is the evidence that it affords in favor of infection. So the Encyclopedia Britannica from 1910 is 
refuting this story. And it says, Stripes are frequently seen in high-caste Arab horses and crossbred colts out of Arab mares sometimes present far more distinct bars across the legs and other zebra-like markings than characterized the subsequent offspring of Lord Morton's seven-eighths Arabian mare. In the absence of control experiments, there is therefore no reason for assure, for assuming Lord Morton's chestnut mare would have produced less striped offspring had she been mated with the black Arabian before giving birth to a quagga hybrid. To account for the stripes on the subsequent foals, it is only necessary now that the principles of cross-breeding are understood, which is before 1910, to assume that in the crossbred chestnut mare there lay latent the characteristics of the Taliawar or other Indian breeds in which stripes commonly occur. And in other words, the chestnut mare itself was not really pure and the ancestral species of many of our modern horses had striped coats. Clifton continues with his own words. This evidence is entirely opposite to what Jones tried to make it appear about Lord Morton's horses. Is it deliberate deception or just sloppy scholarship? What underlying influence prevails over manifold errors to this end? Why does Stephen E. Jones take the same position as the infamous Charles Darwin? Then in turn, all of the other anti-seedliners in reading and believing Jones's book follow suit, like Ted Wieland and company. Returning to the Encyclopedia Britannica of 1910, 11th edition on page 510, we read the following under the heading Telegony and Dogs and Clifton Quotes. Breeders of dogs are, if possible, more thoroughly convinced of the fact of telegony than breeders of horses. Nevertheless, Sir Everett Millais, a recognized authority before 1910, has boldly asserted that after nearly 30 years experience, during which he made all sorts of experiments, he had never seen a case of telegony. Recent experiments support Malaise's conclusion. Two of the purest breeds at the present day are the Scottish Deerhound and the Dalmatian. A Deerhound, after having seven pups to a Dalmatian, was put to a dog of her own breed. The result was five pups, which have grown into handsome hounds without the remotest suggestion of a previous Dalmatian mate of their dom. And that is one incident out of several which are mentioned in the encyclopedia, which are described. Continuing on page 510, Clifton says, or I'm sorry, Clifton quotes... Experiments with cats, rabbits, mice, with sheep and cattle, with fowls and pigeons, like the experiments with horses and dogs, fail to afford any evidence that any offspring 
inherit any of their characteristics from previous mates of the dam. In other words, they entirely fail to prove that a female animal is liable to be so influenced by her first mate that, however subsequently mated, the offspring will either in structure or disposition give some hint of the previous mate. Now that we have, back to Clifton from the encyclopedia, now that we have substantial testimony offsetting and overriding Stephen E. Jones's fraudulent claims, let's examine the process by which this hypothetical telegony, according to his book, is supposed to have taken place. Jones claims the following quotation is taken from a paper called Applied Trophology. This, in turn, was supposedly translated into English from Russian by a Bennett McCutcheon from Arizona State University during the period leading up to 1978, when Jones was writing the book Free exchange of information with the Soviet Union was rather scarce because of the imposed Iron Curtain. Thus, Jones felt quite safe presenting alleged documentary evidence from that area during that era of time. For who could check its authenticity? After all, how many people are going to try to find a document on the topic of telegony in an inaccessible land written in a foreign language and then have it translated into English. When I get to, um, hopefully we'll be traveling to Clifton's house sometime later this year and I'm going to try to get him to show me this book from Stephen Jones. This afternoon, upon a precursory internet search, I did find a quarterly publication with the name Applied Trophology. Clifton may be surprised by this as he listens to this podcast. This publication was published by a company called Standard Process Laboratories, evidently in the 1960s and the early 1970s. I don't know if it was published beyond that. So Jones may have been referring to that journal. Well, it's not really a journal. He may have been referring to that publication and an article published therein. Now, what is applied trophology? Well, Standard Standard Process Laboratories is a company that makes food supplements. They're selling food supplements. So if Jones quoted an article from Applied Trophology, even though it has a fancy-sounding name, it's not a scholarly scientific journal. It's basically the quarterly newsletter of a company that wants to sell you food supplements. I even found a few laboratories. I did not find an individual named Bennett McCutcheon, as Jones would evidently claimed in his book. But I found a few laboratories, one at the University of Hawaii and another at the University of Montana, named Bennett and McCutcheon, 
which do research in microbiology with insects and genetics and related fields. And these labs have actually collaborated with one another by writing articles on genetics related to those fields. But I didn't find an individual named Bennett McCutcheon. Bennett Labs is in the University of Hawaii. McCutcheon Labs is in the University of Montana. But if Jones had cited something which actually existed, he obviously did not cite it very well. And I could find no article produced by these labs or by the standard process laboratories in their publication Applied Trophology similar to what is described here. Now, what is trophology? Trophology is actually an art more than a science and relates to the study of foods that complement one another. Applied trophology is getting yourself a cheeseburger and french fries. Applied trophology is putting fruit into your milkshake. That's all it is. As one website puts it, trophology is the study of correct food combining. That is, the art of knowing which foods go best with others. So if Stephen Jones is quoting that sort of publication to make an argument about theology and, and science, well, he's a clown, but I knew that long ago. Returning to Clifton for one sentence, according to Jones on page 80 of his book, this article was marked Circulation Restricted to Professional Use. Now, not for nothing, but I do have a copy of one issue of Applied Trophology, which I found on the internet today, and I downloaded as a PDF. And standard process laboratories did have such a notice on this one issue of their journal on the back page. I'm going to post it with this podcast. That issue had a single article which was titled Clinical Acidosis and Alkalosis. Standard process laboratories being a manufacturer of food supplements is, of course, current with all of the trends in in natural health research and things like that. This company is still in business today, and they have been manufacturers of food supplements since 1929, but they are not a scientific institute. And even if they did publish an article on telegony, that does not make a food supplement company into an authority on biology or genetics. So at the very least, if all else he said in his book is true, Stephen Jones nevertheless made bad citations and even worse decisions on scientific authority in the area of reproduction. Searching their website today, where they have many articles and a blog, Standard Process Laboratories, when I searched for telegony, said, your search for telegony returned zero results, 
but I kind of would have expected that. Most of their articles are about health and food. Returning to Clifton. Generally, when a document is translated from one language to another, grammar suffers from direct translation. Strangely, this alleged translation is very smooth and very easy to read. From his description, it is evident this paraphrase may never have been in any book or circulated by any recognized authority. And, and of course, applied trophology is basically a, a newsletter for a vitamin maker. It's not any sort of recognized authority. Anyway, this is what that reputed article allegedly said on page 82. Now, the issue of Clifton must be referring to Jones's book, quoting the article on page 82, because applied trophology, the issue I got is six pages long. In pregnancy, <coughs> the rapid cell division promotes the release of greater than normal quantities of protomorphogens into the blood from the embryo, and the maternal gonad becomes loaded up with embryo blueprints, as it were, which causes subsequent germ cells of the female to be contaminated with the blueprints of the father, for all embryo protomorphogens are one-half duplicates of the genes of each parent. And that's just straight bullshit, too, from what I could see. Standard Process Laboratories does mention protomorphogens in some of their product literature. But these protomorphogens, which they describe, which they basically coined a term, the um, the people that discovered this process are the founders of standard process laboratories, and they were scientists of or doctors of some sort back in the 1920s. But these protomorphogens are glandular extracts which they market commercially with the claim that they are necessary to direct the metabolic processes, growth and repair of all the living tissue. And that definition can be found at a website called rethinkingcancer.org. There is no indication that these protomorphogens have anything to do with reproduction or any effect on reproduction or that cell food because basically protomorphogens are cell food they are substances released by glands to help your cells recover when they're damaged so that they can grow and repair there is no indication that cell food can change the nuclear DNA of a cell. If that were true, we would all have become bananas and pineapples 7,500 years ago. Protomorphogens are cell food. Uh, 
The claims which Jones makes, or repeats in this article, are actually quite alien to the current marketing materials for protomorphogens currently found at standard process laboratories. Returning to Clifton for another one sentence. It is obvious these protomorphogens, he's still quoting Jones, circulating in the maternal blood influence repair and reconstruction to a tremendous extent. Even if this were so, it would only be true that these protomorphogens were used as part of the food which the body, which the cells of the body would process to repair damaged tissue. They would have no effect otherwise. What is true of human females is that they are born with all of their germ cells, called oocytes, from which future ova are derived, already produced intact. Human females, when they're born, when they're one day old, in their bellies, all of their future genetic reproduction material already exists intact. Human females do not form new oocytes, and I will explain oocytes shortly, after their birth. Continue with Clifton and his quote from Stephen Jones. It will be obvious that this presence of paternal blueprints in the blood of a female who has had any child by one husband and subsequently remarries, the children of the later marriage will be carrying characteristics of both male mates. And no, it is not obvious. And Clifton says, then Jones comments on that quotation by stating, when this newly fertilized cell begins to divide itself and grow, they say, there is a subsequent release of some protomorphogens into the blood of the mother, and thus the paternal genes could have a definite effect upon the mother herself and all subsequent offspring. It's at this point that Jones really blows his argument and exposes his ignorance. These are Clifton's words. It's common knowledge that there is no connection between the mother's blood and the embryo or fetus. The fetus makes its own blood of a different type, dependent upon the father's chromosomal contribution. The only use of the umbilical cord between the mother and fetus was for nourishment and oxygen in one direction and the elimination of waste products in the other. Without this separation, principles of immunity dictate the mother's immune system, which would reject and destroy any part of the fetus, and vice versa. All this bulmanor on the part of Jones is pure conjecture and outright fabrication. Yet he finds those who agree with and support his finagling. The Collier's Encyclopedia, published in 1980, Volume 2, page 174, under Anatomy, Human, the Reproduction System, says, the reproductive system, I'm sorry, there usually is no continuity between the mother's blood and that of the embryo or fetus. This is common knowledge and is found in many medical-related publications. The definition of continuity is state or quality of being continuous. 
a continuous or connected whole. The definition of trophology. Now here Clifton says this is the definition of trophology, and then he has the word trophoblast in parentheses. They're actually two separate words. He will define trophoblast. The definition of trophoblast from the 1995 Webster's New Universal Unabridged Dictionary is embryo, the layer of extra embryonic ectoderm that chiefly nourishes the embryo or develops into fetal membranes with nutritive functions. Notice it is fetal membranes and not the tissue of the mother. Jones and all those anti- seed liners use some of the most distorted arguments I've ever heard. And Clifton says, well, let's continue. And he's going back to Jones's book. But first, Clifton defined trophoblast rather than trophology. And if I had to guess, he did not find trophology in his dictionary, which, even according to Wikipedia, as we've seen above from a different website, as we've already defined it, is food combining, also known as trophology, is a term for the nutritional approach that advocates specific combinations of foods as central to good health and weight loss. That's trophology, food combining. But as Clifton has said, the trophoblast is a layer of tissue on the outside of a mammalian mammals, right? Blastula, supplying the embryo with nourishment and later forming the major part of the placenta. Again, Jones uses Darwinian logic on pages 83 and 84, where he quotes Dr. Austin Flint's Textbook of Human Physiology. Dr. Flint then commented on the belief that when a man and a woman had been married to each other for a long period of years, they began to resemble each other. This phenomenon is called saturation. Dr. Flint asked of telegony, may we not have here the explanation of the fact, which has frequently been pointed out, that husband and wife show a tendency to grow like each other, both physically and mentally, the resemblance after a long married life sometimes being very striking. And in my own opinion, this is a ridiculously childish concept. Sometimes two people of the same race, of the same stock, as a husband and wife should be, when they get old, yeah, they start to look the same. If they're sedentary, if they sit around like couch potatoes and eat Fritos all day, yeah, they'll both look round and fat. And if they're a very active couple, they'll both look thin and lean. That's my opinion. Otherwise, the first thing I thought of was how many mixed-race, long-term mixed-race marriages we have records of in Hollywood and, and in public life, and we could just go to the Internet and look at their pictures. So the first one I thought of was Heidi Klum, the German model, married to Seal, the African, the African 
beast. And she was married to him for like 10, 12 years, whatever, had several children with him. But Heidi Klum still doesn't look anything like Seal. You could find people of different races married to each other for 50 years, and no, they still look like their own race. They still don't adopt the features of, of the other races. To think so is simply ridiculous. Heidi Klum still hasn't begun to look like the animal that she is married to. Clifton also refutes this idea, where he says, Do you comprehend the implications of what is being said here? Both Flint and Jones are surmising that, gradually, the genetics of the couple are changing until they are alike. This is a harebrained suggestion. Well, if we understand the mechanics of intercourse, surely with such a hypothesis, only the wife's genetics could change to that of the husband's. Or could it be that the husband is affected genetically by kissing? Surely Judah being married to the Canaanite woman, daughter of Shua, for several years didn't take on her Canaanite features. This convoluted, absurd hypothesis suggests that the wife's genetics are modified by the husband's during intercourse. For a moment, Let's take a look at what happens at conception. Scientists note today that each single cell of the human body has two sets of 23 chromosomes, or a total of 46. I will now quote the World Book Encyclopedia, page, volume 9, page 192, and it looks like column D, if such a thing exists. Clifton has page 192 D. Maybe it's a typo. Every human body cell contains two sets of 23 chromosomes. These two sets look very much alike. Each chromosome in one set can be matched with a particular chromosome in the other set. Egg cells and sperm cells have only one set of 23 chromosomes. These cells are formed in such a special way and end up with only half the number of chromosomes found in body cells. As a result, when an egg and a sperm come together, the fertilized egg cell will contain the 46 chromosomes of a normal body cell. Half of the chromosomes come from the mother and half from the father. We can clearly see that every cell in our bodies contains the same two sets of 23 chromosomes, one set having its origin from the male sperm, and the other set from the female egg. In essence, both Flint and Stephen E. Jones are surmising that somehow one or both parties of this marriage lose some of the original 23 chromosomes from each of their parents, enough to alter their appearance. Such a thing would only create greater complications, as conception starts with one cell united containing 46 chromosomes, 23 from each parent. As these cells divide and redivide, they are directed to become various tissue, such as muscle, heart, brain, bone, etc. In doing this, every cell making up the body has this same genetic code built into it as the original cell, half from the father and half from the mother.
are Jones and Flint suggesting there is some kind of device that goes through all the millions of cells and gradually changes their original DNA genetic code. I find such an idea fantastically unrealistic. Does this device somehow trade the wife's chromosome she got from her two parents in exchange for the chromosomes of her husband's two parents? Well, this seems to be their concocted conclusion. If what Flint and Jones are implying is true, at what point does a man's wife become his sister? And at what point in time does that married couple discontinue having normal, lawful sexual relations and start to commit unlawful incest? Clifton stab at humor. Surely, if a wife takes on the genetic makeup of her husband, she would, ge- she would be genetically equivalent to his sister. Moreover, eventually, by that hypothesis, one of that couple could receive an organ transplant from the other without requiring anti-rejection drugs, which brings us back to the subject of immunology. Before we consider that, let's first look into the DNA. Here is what the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia said 29 years ago in Volume 4, page 180. The gene theory states that the characteristics of each generation are transmitted to the next by the units of inheritance known as genes. The genes are composed of deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. The large complex molecules of DNA are made up of four kinds of subunits, called nucleotides, which are arranged in a double helix. The information in each gene resides in a particular order of these subunits. Each gene, since each gene is composed of 10,000 or so nucleotides arranged in some specific sequence, and when one nucleotide is out of sequence, there's a huge problem. There is a very large number of possible combinations of nucleotides, and therefore a large number of different sequences representing different bits of genetic information. The information in each gene is transmitted from one generation to the next by a code called the genetic code, which involves the linear sequence of the four nucleotide units making up the gene. In each cell generation, the gene undergoes replication, so that when the cell divides, each of the two daughter cells gets an exact copy of the code. Also, in each cell generation, one or more transcriptions of the code may be made by which the Genetic information is used to regulate the assembly of a specific enzyme or protein. And Clifton says what this is referring to is replication of the cells within one's body, not the next generation of people. And here Clifton may have mentioned oocytes, but he didn't. And perhaps space did not allow it, so we will. The oocyte, O-O-C-Y-T-E. The oocyte is one of perhaps 
upwards of a hundred thousand cells present in the ovaries of each and every baby girl when they are born. Each of those cells contains 23 chromosomes from the baby girl's mother and 23 chromosomes from the baby girl's father, just like all of the other cells in the girl's body. When a girl reaches puberty, each month one or more of these cells divides, and the resulting ova, or egg cells, travel down the fallopian tubes connecting the ovaries to the uterus where they await fertilization. Of course, the vast majority of these ova never get fertilized, fortunately for women, but of course those that do result in children. In order for telegony to work, there must be some process by which the genetic code written into each and every one of those oocytes, a hundred thousand of them, is somehow changed. But no such process has ever been discovered, nor will it be discovered. There is a re relatively recent discovery called microchimerism, where it is believed that in some cases, male DNA somehow gets into female sexual partners. They believe it may have happened through pregnancy, but they are not certain of that yet. So far, this is only found in a minority of cases. How this happens is yet unknown, and the transfer affects the blood and the brain of the female in microscopically small proportion, and it has been linked to some brain diseases such as Alzheimer's, but men get Alzheimer's, so there's no solid definite link there either. What microchimerism does not do is affect the reproductive cells of the female, which were already fully formed before she was born. For these reasons and others, telegony is not real. I'm going to um, read from an article from ScienceDaily.com. I have a study on microchimerism that was um, pretty popular on the internet when it first came out, but it's very inconclusive. I've read the study, and I believe that Science Daily gives a um, a fair assessment of it. And Science Daily says that this was published in 2012, in September. Male DNA is commonly found in the brains of women, most likely derived from prior pregnancy with a male fetus. Note the words, most likely, because they really can't explain this. According to 
first-of-its-kind research conducted at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. While the medical implications of male DNA and male cells in the brain are unknown, studies of other kinds of microchimerism, the harboring of genetic material and cells that were exchanged between fetus and mother during pregnancy, have linked the phenomenon to autoimmune diseases and cancer, sometimes for better and other times for worse. Of course, the the workings of the immune system, which Clifton is describing in his paper on telegony, Factor Fiction, the workings of the immune system, as they are generally understood, would tell us that this male DNA that's in these women would be treated as foreign bodies and attacked by the woman's immune system. So how the DNA got there is and, and why it hadn't triggered an immune reaction earlier really isn't known. This is new research, and these people don't know. It goes on to say, the study findings are published September 26 in a scientific journal, and the lead author is a chinkolator named William F.N. Chan. Ph.D. in the Department of Biochemistry at the University of Alberta, who conducted the research while working in the Hutchinson Center Laboratory of J. Lee Nelson, M.D., a member of the Center's Clinical Research Division and a leading international authority on microchimerism. Nelson is senior author on the paper. Chan said the study is the first description of male microchimerism in the female human brain. Let me explain microchimerism real quick. A chimera is an animal made up of various different parts of animals. So they borrowed this word to describe this, um, this phenomenon where if somehow a piece, a, a male cell got in, a, well, I'm sorry, not a male cell. If somehow the cell of one animal, which could of course be a person, and the cell of another, got into the body of a cell of another animal, into the bloodstream or into some other part of the body, and didn't just die, but lived on, and replicated itself because cells naturally divide and replicate itself, then that would be microchimerism, where that animal that received that cell from another animal carried this little piece of the other animal with it for an indefinite period of time, maybe for years. And that that little piece of that other animal, that other cell, continued to survive and multiply and, and in, in a kind of a, um, microcosmic sort of way, you become a chimera because you are an animal with a small part of another animal in you. Does that make you a freak of nature? No. 
we probably all have parts of other animals in us. We all have things like minced monkey guts in, in the serums or the vaccines that we were injected with as kids. We all have some pretty vile things, animal kidneys and chicken gizzards and whatever these Jews could come up with to put in these vaccine serums to poison us with. So if we have minced monkey guts in us and and we have a baby, does the baby come out to be part monkey? No, it's ridiculous. The thought is ridiculous that this is going to affect our um, reproductive systems in a global sort of way to change the nature of future children that we have. Now, I'm not saying that the vaccines are are, are um, harmless. They certainly are. Um, a lot of other wicked things that they do to us. But to rewrite our reproductive DNA so that our children aren't really our children, but have the characteristics of something else, no, that's not found. It's not found in that this 19th century fable called telegony and it's not found with, with this micro chimerism research that's rather late until this study it was not known whether these cells could cross the barrier in humans the brain-blood barrier, because they're really concerned with cancer and brain disease research. Let me start at the top of the paragraph. Chan said that the study is the first description of male microchimerism in the female human brain. The findings support the likelihood that fetal cells frequently cross the human blood-brain barrier and that microchimerism in the brain is relatively common. Until this study, it was not known whether these cells could cross the barrier in humans. For this research, the scientists examined brain autopsy specimens from 59 women who had died between the ages of 32 and 101. Male microchimerism was detected in 63% of subjects, was distributed in multiple brain regions, and was potentially persistent throughout the human lifespan. The oldest female in whom male fetal DNA was detected in the brain was 94. 26 of the women had no neurological disease and 33 had Alzheimer's disease. The brains of women with Alzheimer's disease had a somewhat lower prevalence of male microchimerism, which appeared in lower concentrations in regions of the brain most affected by the disease. That would be nice if only women got Alzheimer's, but men get Alzheimer's too, so how did they get it? However, the authors noted that this small number of subjects and a largely unknown pregnancy history of the women means a link between Alzheimer's disease and the level of male cells of fetal origin cannot be established. This study also does not provide an association between male microchimerism in the female brain and relative health versus disease. So they're looking at this 
from a disease point of view, but foreign objects in the blood which collect in the brain are a far cry from foreign objects in the blood being able to rewrite the genetic code of a hundred thousand oocytes in the female ovaries. And if foreign objects, if the DNA from a man could do that, why doesn't the DNA from those minced monkey guts in your vaccine serums do that? Why doesn't the DNA from the food you eat do that? If male DNA in your bloodstream could do it, any DNA in your bloodstream could do it. It simply just doesn't happen. Or you might have two kids that look normal, and all of a sudden, one kid comes out looking like an ape. What the hell? You're looking at your wife, and all she did was get a vaccine shot or a flu shot. And she had a kid looking like an looking like an ape. That the, the idea is ridiculous. The idea that there's no connection between something in the blood and the redesign of your reproductive system—it's absurd. It's 19th century superstition, and this is now the 21st century we gotta leave this superstition behind back to Clifton it is overwhelmingly apparent the almighty created us with a well-regulated genetic code which can only be damaged through miscegenation and once defiled it can never be repaired our body cells are controlled by this genetic code and not subject to telegony. Ladies, you'll always be the genetic daughter of your father and mother, not your husband. Genesis 1.11 says the seed is in itself after its kind. In other words, our Creator has placed safeguards within us to protect that genetic code. That is why, when one receives an organ transplant, one must forever continue to take anti-rejection drugs to suppress one's immunity. The subject of the rejection process is quite complex, but the following from the 1980 Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 18, page 219, under the topic of organ transplantation will serve for this destruction. And the idea that male DNA was found in these female brains, if it comes from where they think it comes from, that doesn't even mean that those cells that contain that DNA weren't attacked by the woman's immune system. When cells in your bloodstream are attacked and killed by the antibodies in, in your immune system, then where does the DNA go? Some of it has to go somewhere. That's my conjecture. When the donor and the recipient are identical twins or members of the same inbred line of animals, the procedure is known as isotransplantation. Transplants performed between 
two individuals of different species or of the same species but not identical twins are subject to a process known as rejection. Identical twins being derived from a single ovum are exactly alike in all their tissues and therefore will accept tissue from each other without rejection. According to present concepts, the immunological reaction is called forth by the exposure of the recipient to certain substances that are present in or on the living cells of the donor organ but are lacking in recipient. These substances are called histocompatibility antigens. Histocompatibility antigens are determined by histocompatibility genes in much the same way as an individual's hair color or iris color is determined. Each individual inherits a set of genes, basic units of heredity, and thereby antigens from each of the parents. Upon exposure to the donor's antigens, the recipient responds by recognizing the tissue as foreign. The data is sufficient to demonstrate. If any sperm cells survived from a former sire and somehow found their way into the blood of the mother, they would be recognized as foreign and would be rejected by her immune system's response to them. Secondly, if somehow the sperm cells of that sire survived in the blood and managed to find their way to her egg supply, they could in no way alter the genetics of those eggs, the oocytes. The 23 chromosomes of the male are paired to the 23 chromosomes of the female and are directly opposite to each other in each cell's helix, the intertwining strands of the DNA. Therefore, there is no way the male sperm or any object from any other life form, any cell from any other life form, could modify the 23 chromosome contribution of the female. Under such a hypothetical condition as Jones and Flint suggest, the chromosomes would be so misaligned and confused. If a next pregnancy were to occur, it would only result in a genetically deformed, disorderly mass of twisted flesh. We only have to look at Down syndrome for comparison. For this, we will again use Collier's Encyclopedia, volume 16, pages 454 and 455. And here, Clifton is not disparaging people with Down syndrome. However, it is evident that a single mismatched chromosome, one extra chromosome, can cause genetic havoc in an individual. So imagine if some other DNA infected the cellular DNA of a woman's egg cells, the nuclear DNA of a woman's egg cells. And the result could be many mismatched chromosomes. And if there were many mismatched chromosomes, 
problems, that would lead to something far worse than Down syndrome. If it could be imagined. If that could be imagined. Down syndrome is one mismatched chromosome. So you're just going to envision that some foreign DNA in a woman's blood could come along and attach itself to this nuclear DNA in all of this woman's 100,000 egg cells. How many mismatched chromosomes are you going to have? How, how big of a mess is that going to make? That's not possible. That probably wouldn't even produce something living. Clifton goes on to describe Down syndrome so that we see the impact of this. Down syndrome is a developmental disorder characterized by mental retardation as well as by abnormalities of bone growth and other physical malformations. The disorder is characterized by the presence of physical traits that are normal at an early stage of fetal development. Among these fetal traits are the narrow, slanting eyes, which give such cases a superficial resemblance to the Asiatic races. But the resemblance really has nothing to do with the Asiatic races. Down syndrome actually has no racial connotations, but is a pathological condition that may occur in any human race. Although many factors have been proposed as causes of Down syndrome, it has now been established that persons with this disorder typically have 47 chromosomes instead of the normal 46. The occurrence of the additional chromosome results from an abnormality in the process of reproductive cell formation. In the normal process of reproductive cell division, one member of each chromosome pair goes to each cell. In Down syndrome, the failure of one specific chromosome pair to separate results in the occurrence of that particular chromosome in triplicate in the offspring. So one of the 46 chromosomes doesn't only have one one of the 23 chromosomes from each parent one set has one extra chromosome and we see the havoc that that causes the problems that that causes in the child so the random writing of or or the random adhering of extra genetic material to the cells of the oocytes, that would really create a mess. That wouldn't create life. That would probably create death. Clifton says if only one misplaced chromosome can cause that much havoc, consider the complications that would result under Jones's imagined concept, or the the imagined concepts of those who believe in telegony, or now want to give telegony support because of this newly discovered phenomenon of microchimerism. But microchimerism does not affect the reproductive system.
the random rewriting of DNA in the egg cells of a woman would cause havoc when those eggs are fertilized. You wouldn't know what you would end up with. With all of the sins of our ancestors, we would have all gone off into genetic oblivion many centuries ago. Clifton continues, for further proof that Stephen E. Jones was using Darwinian theory in his book, The Babylonian Connection, on pages 77 to 85, endorsing the hypothesis of telegony. He will now quote a paragraph from The Etiology of Racism in Europe, from a website belonging to the Turkish government, which is, the page which Clifton cites is um, no longer available. I found an article with that title on several different university websites in Turkey by the same name, but they did not contain this quotation. So perhaps either the translation is different or the article has been changed. But the tenor of the article is very much as it is here in Clifton's quote. It's very similar. And it says, Later, when racist theories took hold of the scientific community, the article's talking about National Socialist Germany, the racial inferiority of the Semites, meaning Jews, was explained by the long-term adverse effects of their religion on the blood. This went so far as to revive telegony, which implied that the fetus was engendered by a mongrel male in a pure-blood female, modified the mother in its image in such a way that the later descendants of the same mother were also condemned to impurity. It is noteworthy that this idea was forwarded by Spencer and found support in many writings of Darwin. Hence the source of Hitlerian laws prohibiting mixed marriages. Another consequence of Darwinian science was the reinforcement of heredity promoting it to the rank of a universal law and greatly contributing to racist theories and practice. And Clifton says, while we can agree to a small degree with this last quotation, we must differ somewhat with the last sentence, for Darwin, Darwin was interested to a greater degree on environment affecting future generations rather than heredity. The reason for including it here is to show the Darwinian connection and his unproved theory of telegony. On one occasion, Darwin, because he couldn't account for the many various features of a particular breed of cattle, said it was due to spontaneous variations based on modern DNA genetic science, it would be ridiculous to account for any variations in man or animal somehow happening in such a haphazard way. Evidently, Darwin, like today's anti-seedliners, never read Genesis 1.12, where it says, after his kind. And then referring to Darwin's 
spontaneous variations, Clifton says, that's comparable to saying all the races came from Eve. Inasmuch as the anti-seedliners love Darwin's theories, wait till they start spreading that one. From all this one can see that when Stephen from all this, one can see that when Stephen E. Jones promotes telegony loudly, the rest of the anti-seedliners, desperate to, for any pseudoscience to bolster their unbelief, believe it strongly, and purchase Jones's Brooklyn Bridge. And of course, Clifton had already said that Ted Wheeland was one of those. Here Clifton is going to depart from his discussion of telegony to give a lengthy explanation of what a gestation is. I do not really remember why he did this, and he did not state exactly why he did it. But I do remember that it was in response to certain identity Christians who were corresponding with Clifton on his topic, and they were repeating the fables of Wesley Swift. Clifton wanted to make certain that they understood that if Eve had seven gestations to cleanse her womb, that would mean carrying seven children to full term. That's what a gestation is. Children which are never mentioned in scripture. So Swift was essentially a tale-teller, and he was just as bad as Stephen Jones. Gestation in physiology, Clifton quoting Chambers' Encyclopedia, is the term applied to the period that intervenes in the mammalia, or in mammals, between impregnation and the bringing forth of the young. And that's about all that we're going to repeat of this section of Clifton's paper, and he says, sometimes people demand a second witness that a term is understood and used in a certain way. From the 1894 Encyclopedia Britannica, ninth edition, volume 5, under the subject cattle, and speaking specifically of oxen on page 214, it is stated, the period of gestation in the cow is nine months. And he says, I would point out that Gestation, in this case, is considered to take a period of nine months for the oxen. For a third witness, I will use Collier's 1980 Encyclopedia under reproduction, and it gives the various gestation period for animals. And Clifton wants to make it make certain that identity Christians understand, without argument, what a gestation is, and that must be how Wesley Swift understood the term. All of this simply boils down to the fact that the term gestation, Clifton says, means the period of time a mother carries a child from conception until its birth. So Wesley Swift is basically saying that Eve carried seven children to full term in between the births of Abel and Cain and the births of Seth. And that's bullshit. That's straight bullshit. Wesley Swift just made that up. I love Wesley Swift for a lot of things. He did a lot of good things, but that's a downright lie. And then he just says, oh, that didn't help to build the kingdom. So they were not 
mentioned in Scripture. Well, why the hell do we have the history of Jezebel and Ahab in Scripture? There's a lot of things that weren't kingdom building that are mentioned in Scripture. I think it would have been edifying to know that Eve's sin cost her seven living children, that she had to kick them to the curb. That would be important to know. That would be a damned important facet of the sin of Eve and its consequences. But it's not true. So it's not in the Bible. And Wesley Swift, he goes into the clown category for that one. That's just the way it is. This is um, from a 1996 study on microchimerism. Because this um, idea has been around a while. It might be a phenomenon. Rare nucleated fetal cells. This is the abstract of a study by Diana Bianchi, Gretchen Zickwolf, Gary Wheel, Shelley Sylvesta, and Marianne De Maria. And evidently, there's no chinkolators involved in this one. The abstract says, rare nucleated fetal cells circulate within maternal blood. Non-invasive prenatal diagnosis by isolation and genetic analysis of these cells is currently being undertaken. We sought to determine if genetic evidence existed for persistent circulation of fetal cells from prior pregnancies. Venous blood samples were obtained from 32 pregnant women and 8 non-pregnant women. Now, this study is done with living women. The first study we cited, which is more recent, was done with deceased women. Now, in the first study, only 63% of women, 63% of the women, had any male DNA at all in their brains. So, 37% of women, they did not find DNA in their brains. So, what does that tell us? Well, there might be a source other than pregnancy for this DNA. There might be reasons other than pregnancy for the presence of this DNA. That's a possibility. But even if it does occur because of pregnancy, it doesn't occur in all women. So you can't come to conclusions about these studies with any relationship to whether telegony is fact or fiction. And as we have asserted, and I believe demonstrated, telegony is certainly fiction. Venus blood samples were obtained from 32 pregnant women. And eight non-pregnant women who had given birth to males six months to 27 years earlier. Mononuclear cells were sorted by flow cytometry using antibodies to CD antigens 3, 4, 5, 19, 23, 34, and 38. I'm sorry about the technical languages. I'll post this study with the podcast as well. DNA within supported cell, sorted cells amplified for Y chromosome sequences, meaning 
male chromosome sequences because female cells have two X chromosomes and male cells have one X and one Y chromosome was considered predictive of a male fetus or evidence of persistent male fetal cells. In the 32 pregnancies, male DNA was detected in 13 of 19 women carrying a male fetus. That's about the same rate as the other study. In 4 of 13 pregnancies with female fetuses, male DNA was also detected. All of the 4 women had prior pregnancies. 2 of the 4 had prior males to the other 2 and the other two had terminations of pregnancy. In other words, they had miscarriages or abortions. In six of the eight non-pregnant women who had already had children, male DNA was detected in certain cells. And, and it says the cells, but it's only technical terms that would be gobbledygook on, on, on the podcast. Even in a woman who had her last son 27 years prior to blood sampling. Our data demonstrate the continued maternal circulation of fetal cells from a prior pregnancy. The prolonged persistence of fetal progenitor cells may represent a human analog of the microchimerism described in the mouse and may have significance in development of tolerance of the fetus. Pregnancy may thus establish a long-term, low-grade chimeric state in the human female. And then, to read some of the um, conclusion of the article. The development of microchimerism in human pregnancies needs to be further investigated in larger numbers of multi of multiparous women, meaning women who have had more than one child. Fetal cells could be engrafting in maternal lymphoid organs or bone marrow. Alternatively, the progenitor cells could remain in the circulation and continue to divide for years. These hypotheses could be tested by obtaining blood and bone marrow samples from women who have had chromosomally abnormal fetuses. That would be a baby with Down syndrome. Important questions need to be asked, such as, what is the clinical significance, if any, of becoming chimeric? Is there any evidence of low-grade chronic graft versus host disease in Paris women, women who have had babies, due to microchimerism? Is there any relationship between pregnancy and the subsequent development of autoimmune disorders? The eight non-pregnant women described here were all healthy. The ability to detect rare populations of fetal cells via sensitive techniques such as fluorescence-activated cell sorting will permit further exploration of these important issues. So microchimerism, they're looking at this from a standpoint of abnormality and disease, that this phenomenon might cause diseases in women, but they're not even imagining that perhaps this could affect future offspring of women from other males. Because it's really a ridiculous assumption to believe that 
every one of a hundred thousand oocytes in a woman's ovaries would be rewritten even if a few male cells got into the woman's bloodstream from an old husband who she had a child with. This is two totally separate phenomena. Two totally different biological processes. Clifton asks, how does all of this apply to Eve in the garden? And he says, two seed liners holding the telegony theory demand that Eve would have to have had seven gestations after birthing the half-breed Cain. That would mean that she would have to have carried seven full-term children to a successful birth before obtaining an unpolluted, racially pure child. They do not designate whether the seventh or eighth would be the pure one. However, one might count them. It would mean that both Abel and Seth would be racially polluted. However, Matthew 23.35 speaks of the righteous Abel who had righteous blood. The telegony advocates never cite any scripture where Eve had seven or eight children between Cain and Seth. Where is their documentation? Where are their two required witnesses? And where is the proof? that if telegony really did exist, seven or eight pregnancies could undo the damage in the first place. These assertions are all ridiculous. And Wesley Swift, wow. Conclusion, it can't be both ways. Either telegony is true or two seed line is true. To believe both is a contradiction and destroys one's premise. Therefore, if 2C line is true, then telegony is fiction. If we accept, and these are my own comments, if we accept telegony as a fact, it has greater implications than Genesis chapter 3. David, the model for Christ, as well as his ancestor, had two wives who had been the wives of other men, Abigail and Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the mother of both Nathan and Solomon, but Bathsheba had a former husband, Uriah. We're not told if she had children with him or not, but we'll get to that in a moment. Abigail also had sons for David, and she also had a former husband, Nabal. Nabal died, Abigail married David. It is not clear whether either woman had children before being taken as wives by David. But in some of the claims made concerning telegony, that wouldn't even matter. If we accept telegony, there is this strong possibility that Christ was really not of the house of David, but maybe he was of the house of David and Uriah and Nabal. Bathsheba Abigail certainly wasn't a virgin. She was married to her husband, Nabal, for some time before he died. Bathsheba? Bathsheba could not have been a virgin. She was the wife of a soldier. Let's see Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 5. When a man has taken a new wife, he shall not go out to war. Neither shall be 
he be charged with any business. But he shall be free at home for one year, and shall cheer up his wife, which he has taken. Yeah, a man that has a year to lay in bed with a new wife can really cheer her up. Bathsheba could not have been a virgin. Or Uriah would be violating God's law by being off into the army. Even after this, Bathsheba was the mother of Solomon and David. I'm sorry, Solomon and Nathan, the sons of David. Abigail also had sons, and they remained with the house of David. These were all among the seed of David that was blessed by God, and it was to stand forever. So it is ridiculous to think that somehow they were spurious, or they could have been part Uriah and part David, or part Uriah and part Nabal and part David. Yahshua Christ referred to the blood of the righteous Abel, as Clifton is mentioned here, in Matthew chapter 23. If Abel were affected by telegony, how could he be righteous, being a bastardized seed? And if Abel were not affected by telegony, how could seven subsequent children not be righteous? This is the fabric of a lie which Wesley Swift has woven, and it needs to be thrown into the fires of Gehenna. This all adds up to one fact. Telegony is bullshit. It's superstition which does not belong in Christian identity. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. I'll be here next week. I'm sorry, my voice is stuck. I'll be here next week with my part two of my presentation of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Praise Yahweh.